Well, let's respond by opening up the Word of God and turning to the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers, chapter 10, verses 29 through 36. Numbers chapter 10, beginning in verse 29. Let's hear now the Word of God. Now Moses said to Hobab, the son of Ruel, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law, We are setting out for the place of which the Lord said, I will give it to you. Come with us, and we will treat you well. For the Lord has promised good things to Israel. And he said to him, I will not go, but I will depart to my own land and to my relatives. So Moses said, Please do not leave, inasmuch as you know how we are to camp in the wilderness, and you can be our eyes. And it shall be, if you go with us, indeed it shall be, that whatever good the Lord will do to us, the same we will do to you. So they departed from the mountain of the Lord on a journey of three days, and the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them for the three days' journey to search out a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was above them by day when they went out from the camp. So it was whenever the ark set out that Moses said, Rise up, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered. And let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the many thousands of Israel. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word to us this morning. Amen. Seeking the Lord's help and blessing this morning, let's turn back to Numbers chapter 10 as we focus our attention upon verse 29 through 31. Really, let's just focus uh, at this moment on verse 29. Now Moses said to Hobab the son of Ruel the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law, we are setting out for the place of which the Lord said, I will give it to you. Come with us and we will treat you well, for the Lord has promised good things to Israel. Again, he says to his brother-in-law, Moses says, we are setting out for the place of which the Lord said, I will give it to you. Come with us. Come with us. When we speak of the Gospel, what do we mean? What is the Gospel? of Jesus Christ. What does that word gospel mean? Well, we typically say it means the good news. And rightly so. That's a good way to explain it. The gospel is the good news of what God has done to save sinners through Jesus Christ. The gospel is the good news of what God has done to save sinners through Jesus Christ. Really, this is the theme that runs through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. This declaration of what God has done to save sinners through the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul summarizes 
that declaration in 1 Corinthians 15, a passage that no doubt many of us are familiar with. Verse 1, he's saying, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved. Then he goes on, verse 3, here's this gospel, this good news. For I delivered to you first of all, that is, as of first importance, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. It goes on to speak of a number of the eyewitnesses of our Lord's death and especially His resurrection. But this is what God has done, chiefly, primarily, to save sinners through Jesus Christ, Christ was sent into the world. He died for the sins of His people, for our sins, for the sins of all who with Paul can say, I believe this Gospel, and I believe God's Word, and I, I, I know whom I have believed. Christ died for our sins, taking the punishment that we deserve, becoming a curse, becoming sin for us on the cross as our substitute to atone for our sins to satisfy God's righteous wrath against our rebellion and to be appeased and satisfied in the perfect work of Christ who said, it is finished. And He gave up the ghost. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. In other words, this was not a surprise to those who understood their Hebrew Bible, those who were listening to the Word that Christ proclaimed throughout His ministry. In fact, This is exactly what the entire Bible was leading up to. That Christ would die on the cross for our sins. And that He was buried, so He really died. And He really went into the grave. His soul in heaven with the dying thief. Today you'll be with me in paradise. And His body in the grave. In the tomb. Until the third day. And that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. So His death, burial, and resurrection to save His people from their sins and to be victorious over sin, Satan, and over death itself. That's the good news of what God has done to save sinners through Jesus Christ. Now, prior to the coming of Christ in what we call the Old Testament, prior to Christ's incarnation, God becoming man, born of a virgin in... in, um, Bethlehem, prior to that in the Old Testament, this good news was proclaimed in advance of the coming of Christ. So it's not as though people in the Old Testament had a different gospel or as though somehow they couldn't be saved from their sins. It wasn't as though they, they had some other mechanism for finding peace with God. No, this same gospel, this same good news was proclaimed in advance. Today it's proclaimed looking back to what Jesus has done. But back then it was proclaimed looking ahead to what Jesus would do according to the promise of the Gospel. And this was proclaimed in two ways in the Old Testament, chiefly. First, by way of anticipation. That is, through promises and prophecies. Even from the outset in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, you find... God coming to Adam and Eve. They've sinned. They've fallen. 
and he preaches the gospel to them that the seed of the woman, this promised seed, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, this seed of the woman, this Messiah, this anointed one, would come and crush the head of the serpent, of Satan himself. So you see there are these promises, these prophecies. God comes to Abraham and He says, Abraham, I'll make you a father of many nations and in your seed, the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all families of the earth will be blessed. And we see Abraham believing that promise and we're told he believed the Lord and it was credited to him unto righteousness. He was justified through faith in that gospel promise. And lo and behold, the apostles point us again and again back to Abraham as a pattern for how people are saved today. Believing the promise. Not the promise of Christ yet to come, but the fulfilled promise of Christ who has come and who has saved His people from their sins. That's what the name Jesus actually means. It's the same name as Joshua, who was a deliverer of God's people. Jehovah saves. Jesus is given this title, this name at His birth. Why? For you shall save your people from their sins. And so throughout the Old Testament, all of this is pointed forward. Prophecies that He would be born of a virgin, that He would be born in Bethlehem, that He would be crucified. You've pierced My hands and feet, Psalm 22. That He would be raised again from the dead. God would not let His Holy One see corruption. Psalm 16. Raised from the dead according to the Scriptures. Even the timing of His arrival in this world was predicted by Daniel the prophet who said that there would be roughly 483 years between the declaration to rebuild in Jerusalem and the coming of this Messiah. So all of it was anticipated by promises and prophecies. And as the people heard these things and believed those promises and prophecies, they were saved from their sins by Christ. Secondly, this Gospel was proclaimed in the Old Testament by way of illustration. Various rites and ceremonies that God ordained for the Old Testament people of God in Israel, such as the Passover, where the blood of the Lamb was shed and put on the doorpost. And so you have the shedding of the blood of this spotless Lamb. This spotless Lamb of God. Pointing us, of course, the way John the Baptist reminds us, to this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Even the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lamb who was slain. And you have many other sacrifices and ordinances that point ahead to Christ. It illustrated who the Messiah would be and how He would accomplish salvation by offering Himself up as a high priest and as a sacrifice for the sins of His people. And there were also personal types and shadows. People like King David and King Solomon that in certain respects point ahead to King Jesus and show us something about the character of the Lord Jesus Christ and the way in which He would rule and reign over His people. We see even Moses the God-sent Deliverer to save His people from the land of Egypt and the house of slavery. Moses as a picture of Christ who would come and liberate His people from not from Pharaoh, but from Satan. Not from bondage uh, to the Egyptians, but from bondage to sin. 
and so on and so forth. You see all of these types, even historical types, even the entire event of the Exodus under Moses where all of God's people are taken out of Egypt. This is a type. Moses, a type of Christ. Egypt, a type of this world of sin and misery. Pharaoh, a type of Satan. The wilderness, a type of the believer's life in this world after conversion, uh, living in this difficult and uh, uh, depraved world. And Canaan, the promised land, as a type of heaven. The, the heavenly country. The Jerusalem above, which is our mother. And so, all of these things were proclaimed. Direct prophecies, indirect illustrations, types and shadows. And so the promise of the Gospel was set forth to the people of God. And even Moses himself, living over 1,400 years prior to the birth of Christ, Moses proclaimed this Gospel. He proclaimed it in Deuteronomy 18 when he said, a prophet like me will be raised up from among your brethren. He prophesied the great prophet of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Moses is a type of Christ. He was a prophet proclaiming God's Word. Psalm 99 says that Moses was a priest interceding for the people and procuring God's favor for them through his prayer. And also, Moses was king in Jeshurun, as Deuteronomy tells us. He was a ruler among God's people. He led them. He shepherded them. So Moses even recognized this and proclaimed that that one who would be like him after the pattern of Moses would come to redeem God's people and declare God's truth. Moses said famously in Deuteronomy 30 that a choice is set before you. Life and death. Blessing and cursing. Choose life. This word, he says, is not far off. It's not in a distant land. It's not up in heaven. It's not in the Marianas Trench. It's right there before you. Choose life. Cling, cleave to the Lord as your life and your length of days. This word is near you and in your heart. Believe it and be saved. You you can see Paul using Moses' evangelistic sermon in Deuteronomy 30. Uh, when he proclaims these things in Romans chapter 10. Uh, And beyond that, Moses wrote the book of Genesis. So all these covenant promises throughout the book of Genesis, all these pictures of Christ, the seed of the woman that crushes the serpent's head, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so on, Moses wrote that. So he understood it. He proclaimed it. And we're told that even as God's people were in the very situation that they're in in our text where they, they've been at Mount Sinai for quite some time. They've received the law. They've been judged for the incident with the golden calf. And now they're called to move forward into the wilderness on the way to Canaan. Even in this situation, Moses was proclaiming the Gospel. Hebrews 4, verse 2. For indeed, the Gospel was preached to us, these first century Hebrew professing Christians that Paul's writing to, the Gospel was preached to us as well as to them, speaking of that generation of the Exodus under Moses. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. So Moses preached the promises of salvation through Christ yet to come, 
And the reason that so many were not saved and so many were judged by God is simply this. They didn't believe the Word of God. Is that anything different than we see today? Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the Word of God. Romans 10. He says, For we who have believed do enter that rest. And then he quotes Psalm 95, which of course we just sang. So Moses proclaimed this same Gospel in principle, but not only as a preacher. Not only as an anointed prophet, priest, and king. Moses also shared this Gospel by way of personal witness. Do we understand that? Of course, we need to emphasize the importance of public preaching. In Romans 10, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. How will they hear without a preacher? The church needs to be training up men to proclaim the Gospel. And Moses was such a man. But the fact is, it's also vital in the life of the church that individual Christians share the Gospel personally with their friends, with their family. That they, take, uh, uh, th- that they have compassion and love for their fellow man by explaining to them and declaring to them the words of eternal life. And Moses himself set an example in this. We see it in Numbers 10, uh, verse 29. Now Moses said to Hobab, the son of Ruel the Midianite. Now Ruel the Midianite is the same as Jethro, Moses' father-in-law from the book of Exodus. We're familiar with that. Moses, uh, for 40 years, spent time because he had been he got into trouble in Egypt because he killed an Egyptian who was abusing one of the Israelites. So he fled to Midian for 40 years. He's in exile. He marries a young woman named Zipporah, the daughter of Jethro, the priest of Midian. And so this is the same man. Uh, Ruel the Midianite is Jethro the Midianite, according to most scholars. And so Hobab, the son of Ruel, that is the son of Jethro, Hobab would be Moses' brother-in-law. So it's the son of Moses' father-in-law. Therefore, Hobab is Moses' brother-in-law. By this point, it may be the case that Jethro is no longer alive. And so, in addition to Moses having Zipporah at his side, Hobab has come along and followed the progress of the Exodus. And he's here as well as part of the family and engaging in the life of of God's covenant community. And perhaps members of this family were converted. Uh, Just because Jethro was a priest of Midian doesn't necessarily mean that he was some kind of a pagan priest. Uh, It may be that he, based on some of the things you see in the Scriptures, that he in fact worshipped the true God and eventually proclaimed that message. But in any event, we have Hobab, possibly a believer at this point, but we're not sure. Certainly Moses is going to challenge him to make that clear and to, to, to hear and follow the word and calling of God. But Moses shares his faith with Hobab. He says, this is what God has said. This is what we're doing in response to that. God has said He'll give us this land and we're on this pilgrimage. And he says, come with us. It's a clear presentation, a clear exhortation to respond to the good news of God's promise of this 
promised land of Canaan, the, the land that flows with milk and honey, this type of heaven, He proclaims it, He offers it. Come with us and enjoy the fruit and fulfillment of God's promises. Moses brings this message to Hobab, his brother-in-law, the son of Ruel or Jethro, the brother of Zipporah. And it's very important for us, my friends, if we've come to a saving faith in Christ, a saving knowledge of God, to have a heart for sharing that message with those around us. We find in the New Testament that the Apostle Paul had a heart to share the Gospel with his countrymen, with his brethren according to the flesh, the Jewish people. In Romans chapter 9, verse 2, he says, I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenant. So even these people that had all these advantages, he says, they haven't believed God's Word. They haven't come to Christ. And he says, I could almost wish that I would just forfeit my own salvation that they might be saved. You see the zeal, the passion, the compassion. Romans 10 Verse 1, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Now, I want to challenge you, if you've been approached by a friend or family member and they're seeking to tell you about Jesus, maybe you're not a Christian, maybe you're, you're unsure and unaware of these things, or maybe you've heard about them, but you're uneasy and hesitant, and you have these family members that are approaching you and challenging you and saying, come with us. Put your faith in God's promise. We're headed to that heavenly, celestial city. We're headed to that eternal joy and gladness in the presence of God. Jesus will save you from your sins. Come with us. Believe His promise. Join up in this Christian life and in this Christian church. And you're uneasy. Perhaps you're offended. Understand that no doubt there may be sinful motives and problems with some people that share their faith. But for the most part, when a true Christian comes to you and says, come with us, let's, let's look to the Lord together and, and challenges you to put your faith in Christ and devote yourself to Him, that they're motivated by this same love that Moses had. Moses loves his brother-in-law. Hobab, the son of Ruel. Paul loves his countrymen. I mean, nobody, even if you don't even believe in Christ or in salvation, Paul did believe in it, and he was almost, in a sense, hypothetically willing, perhaps, to sacrifice it and forfeit it so that his friends and family would have salvation. That's the heart of your friends and family when they share Christ with you. So don't take it lightly. Even if at this moment you reject the message, don't shoot the messenger. Recognize that the Holy Spirit of God puts this burden upon the people of God to say, I have Christ. I have salvation. I have the forgiveness of my sins. I'm adopted as a child of God. I'm headed for heaven. All things work together for my good. God is with me. He's liberated me from the house of bondage. And I want you to join in. And have that peace and satisfaction. And to find God as your Father. And the Holy Spirit as your indwelling Comforter. And Jesus Christ as your beloved Bridegroom. That's the motivation here. 
And that ought to be the motivation, my friends, if, if we're true Christians, speaking now to those who profess Christ, if you're a true Christian, is there not a seed at the very least of that desire? Cultivate it. Water it. Feed it. Use it. And be motivated like Moses to share this Gospel with those around you who so desperately need it. Now, Moses goes on. He says, in terms of this Gospel presentation, he says, we are setting out for the place which the Lord said, I will give it to you. So it's interesting here, just as a case study, fascinating to see how Moses shared his faith. Right? He doesn't begin by saying, are you a good person and pivoting to the Ten Commandments, although that's a helpful way to begin to show people their sin and their need for Christ. But how does Moses present the Gospel in this particular situation under these circumstances? He begins with this. We are setting out for the place which the Lord said, I will give it to you. So he begins with divine revelation. He begins with a word from God. God Himself has promised this. And my friends, when the Gospel is proclaimed, it begins with the Word of God. As I've mentioned already twice, faith comes by hearing, and hearing not by the Word of the preacher, not by some new Christian fad in the Christian bookstore, okay, not for spiritual laws, but faith comes by hearing the Word of God. It's God who says all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. It's God who says that the wages of sin is eternal death in hell and the gift of God is eternal life in heaven. It's the Word of God that sets the terms and defines the content of the Gospel. It is the Word of God from beginning to end. And so Moses doesn't waste Hobab's time with mere human speculation with human ideas, human philosophy, human self-help tactics. Here's Here's how you can have a better life. No, he says, the Lord said, I'm going to give you this land. Secondly, there's a gracious promise. The aspect of God's revelation, God's Word that Moses emphasizes, is that which God has promised to give. That which God has promised to give. That is, Canaan. As a picture, and we know from Hebrews 11, the New Testament is clear, the Old Testament saints, they looked beyond Canaan and they saw heaven. They were not content to live in Canaan. That was ultimately not the place of their rest. Psalm 95 says, okay, you're living in Canaan, you're in Jerusalem singing this psalm at the temple, but you haven't yet entered necessarily the rest that is set before the people of God. Canaan points to heaven. Canaan points to heaven, the promised land that God promises to give to His people. Jesus says, believe in God. Believe also in Me. In My Father's house, there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. God promises to give the inheritance of heaven to His believing people. And Moses brings that gracious promise here. Again, it's gracious. God will give it. God will give it to you. What's your role in your salvation? Uh, Ultimately, nothing that you contribute, but what's your role when the Gospel is preached? What, What is it incumbent upon you to do to receive? 
to receive. I will give it to you. What does that mean? God's giving, you're receiving. The wages of sin is death. You earned it. You earned hell. But you don't earn heaven. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God sovereignly accomplishes salvation through Christ and He sovereignly gives salvation to His people. That's the the principle that Moses is emphasizing here. God's gracious promise. And in particular, God's promise of eternal rest in heaven. That whatever Hobab has to enjoy in this life, it's nothing compared to the eternal weight of glory. I hath not seen nor ear heard what God has prepared for those who love Him, whether it be the land of milk and honey that was set before the Israelites as they're being scorched in the wilderness, or whether it's heaven itself which is set before the people of God through the Gospel. God will give this blessing. And Moses gives a personal testimony. He says, we're setting out. We, the people of God, are setting out for this place. Moses says, I include myself here. Okay? I haven't arrived. I'm seeking this gracious blessing. I'm receiving this gift of salvation from God. I'm seeking this promised land of rest in the same way that you need to seek it. Moses is not on a pedestal. He's not high and mighty. He says, I'm on the way. Every single Israelite, man, woman, and child is on the way to Canaan. And will you join us? Because we are setting out toward this place. And that's important as well. If you share the Gospel with people, but they don't see that you're actually headed on that path, if you veered off to the right or to the left, if you're not living it out, what sense does it make for anyone else to embark on that pilgrimage? Right? So, understand, Moses says this, he's like, listen, I've got credibility here. I'm doing this. Join us. Join us. And... One thing, it's interesting here, Moses doesn't say much about sin. Moses doesn't say anything about sin. He doesn't say anything about the wrath of God and the judgment of God. Does that mean that Moses left this out? I don't think so. I think it's clear in the situation that they're at Mount Sinai. Hobab has been with them for some length of time. And so he's seen and heard what happened at Mount Sinai. He heard the law of God with that terrifying voice from heaven. He understands that he's a sinner. If, if, well, if he certainly has every reason to believe that he's a sinner. Whether he understands it at this point, he's heard the message, and Moses doesn't rehearse it for him. He's seen the fire and the cloud and the earthquake, and he's heard the law of God proclaimed by God in his hearing. And he's seen the golden calf, God's people falling into sinful idolatry, And then what happens? God brings judgment and destroys many of them. So he understands sin and judgment. He's seen Mount Sinai. And so Moses sets before him, as it were, Mount Zion. The true true Canaan that that is yet to come. Uh, He sets before him the land of promise. So Moses is simply filling in the gaps of what Hobab had not perhaps yet heard. Now he goes on. Come with us. And we will treat you well. 
Come with us and we will do you good, as another translation says. For the Lord has promised good things to Israel. Notice here we have, first of all, an invitation. So he's explained what God graciously gives through the gospel. Thus saith the Lord, I'll give you this land. I'll give it to you. All you got to do is receive it. And so he invites him to receive it. He invites him, come with us. That exhortation, that command to come, you find it throughout the Scriptures. Isaiah 55.1 Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. The the spread is set on the table. Uh, the, the, The food has been prepared. You think of the parable of the wedding feast, Matthew 22. All things are ready. Come to the wedding. And that food that's on the table, you're invited to eat it. You can come. I mean, if there's food set on a table and someone says, come, what does that imply? You have warrant to come to the table. You're invited to come to that table filled with food. Incline your ear and come to Me. Here and your soul will live. Jesus brings this same exhortation. Jesus, the greater Moses, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus is rejoicing at this point. I thank You, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that You've hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. So the absolute sovereignty of God in saving some and not others according to His mysterious purposes Some people believe, some people don't. God is sovereign. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in Your sight. But then he says this, verse 28. Because some people could get the wrong impression. God is sovereign in salvation. Therefore, that short-circuits this indiscriminate invitation to all to come. That, That somehow it undermines the universal warrant to believe. That all who are under the preaching of the Gospel are invited to come and have warrant to take Christ and in Him salvation. He says, come to Me, all you whom the Father has elected. Nope, doesn't say that. Come to Me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. In other words, those of you who are spending your money for what is not bread, and your labor for what does not satisfy. Those of you who are under the infinite burden of sin and guilt and death and depravity, whether you know that burden is there or not. Now, until you know it's there, you're probably not going to come, but it's an indiscriminate invitation to all within the sound of His voice, all who are laboring and heavy laden. He says, come to Me, all of you, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Isn't that exactly what Moses is saying? We're headed to that place of rest. Come with us. Jesus says, come, 
unto me. The very end of the book of Revelation. So that the Lord from beginning to end is proclaiming this invitation to all who will come. It says, Revelation 22, verse 17, and the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Why does Moses say come? Why do the preachers of the Gospel throughout the history of the church say come? Why am I issuing you this invitation to come right now? Because the Spirit says come. That's why the Bride says come. That's why the church says come. Because the Spirit says come. And whatever Bride of Christ or Church of Christ as they profess themselves doesn't say come is not keeping in step with the Spirit. Come! Come, and let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts come. Come with us, Moses says, to the land of milk and honey. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. It's an invitation. It's also a command. Jesus says in the parable of the wedding feast, when they said, come to the wedding, and the people didn't come, and they had excuses, says that the king was angry and he brought judgment against those people. This is an authoritative invitation. Come to Jesus or He's coming for you because He will return to judge the quick and the dead. And Acts 17 verse 30 tells us that though the Lord in the Old Testament allowed many of the nations of the world to continue in their unbelief without confronting them with this Gospel, He now calls and commands everyone everywhere to repent. It's a command. It's an invitation. But if you crumble up that invitation and throw it in the circular file, you will be held accountable. It's also an offer. It's an offer. In more ways than one. The Lord has promised good things to Israel. God has promised these good things. Come with Israel and you'll have these good things. But also it's an offer that the people of God will receive you into the the body of God's covenant people. Notice he says later, you'll be as eyes for us. He says if, if the Lord sees fit to convert you and add you to the people of God, the Israel of God, if He sees fit to add you in that way, then you'll be part of the body. Just like in the New Testament church, the eyes and ears and hands and feet, the body of Christ. He, he says that we will do you good. We will treat you well. There's a vertical promise. The Lord has promised. And there's a horizontal promise. As you see in Acts chapter 2, when God converts 3,000 at Pentecost, and now they have all things in common. And they enjoy the, the doctrine and instruction of the apostles, the fellowship, the prayers, the breaking of bread. It's an offer. Come and be part of us. Come join us in serving the Lord. And it's also, in some sense, a warning because he says God has promised these good things to Israel. Jesus has come to save His people from their sins. And only His people. Only His people. He says, if you join up with us, 
then the good things God does for us will fall to you. And you'll be incorporated into the Israel of God. And you'll receive the goodness of the land and the goodness of the Lord and the land of the living. And you will receive these things as part and parcel of your covenant with God. But if you remain outside of the covenants of promise, without hope, without God, without Christ in the world, then there's nothing for you. And the same message comes today to those who hear the Gospel. That it's not just a Gospel of individual salvation, but it involves all who are being saved being brought into the church. Peter says, repent and be baptized. Every one of you. Repent and be baptized. When we repent and believe in Christ, we have a duty and a desire to join with the true church of God. And we know that we've passed from death to life because we love the brethren and we're incorporated into the kingdom of God. After all, Acts 20 verse 28 tells us that Christ purchased the church with His own blood. And so those who say, well, I believe in Jesus, but I don't want anything to do with the bride of Christ, with the children of God, that's a concern. Uh, That's a strike against you. That raises questions about whether you've passed from death to life. So, So there's this Warning that you need, to, you need to come to God through His promise and be incorporated into His people. That's the ordinary path to heaven is through uh, membership in the church as an expression of saving faith. Now Hobab responds, I will not go. Verse 30, I will not go, but I will depart to my own land and to my relatives. You say, well, that's not that bad. I mean, surely there were a few scattered believers outside of Israel. Um, and, and, and that is the case, that ordinarily uh, there's no salvation outside of the professing church of Christ. True Christians will join a true church. But, of course, there are extraordinary cases. Well, maybe this would be extraordinary. He goes back to Midian and lives with his family. But understand, he has been commanded by Moses to come. In the same way that Jesus commanded the rich young ruler, in the same way that Jesus commanded Matthew at his tax booth, here Moses says to this man, Hobab, come with us. There's a command here. So it's not morally neutral. He's saying God is calling you to come. And in addition, if Hobab is a true believer, the fact of the matter is, he will not be able to resist the inestimable spiritual privileges even as a stranger and a sojourner, a non-Israelite, in the land of Canaan. He will not be able to turn down the opportunity to be gathered around God's house, God's tabernacle, with God's people, observing the Sabbath, synagogue meetings week by week, learning of the truth of God, praising God. He won't be able to turn that down. And my friends, once again, we see this again and again in the life of the greater Moses. Jesus calling people and they have a similar reaction. Oh, I need to go home and bury mom and dad. Or I need to go home and spend time with my family. Or I need to go do this or go do that. Um, I've bought some land. I've married a wife. I have a new uh, ox that I need to set up with my ox cart. All of these excuses. And what does Jesus say in each case? He says, "If, if you put your hand to the plow and turn back, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. He says, you need to come. And so there is 
a requirement here, an obligation of Hobab to come, and he's hesitant. And you may be hesitant to come to Christ for various reasons. There may be things that hinder you, that you think, well, um, if, if I came to church, I wouldn't be able to do this other thing on the Lord's day. Or if I involved myself in the life of the church, it would distance me and alienate me from friends and family. Or maybe I'm involved in my vocation. My job is something that God forbids. Or, or, or maybe by becoming a Christian, people would scorn me and reject me and make fun of me. Whatever it may be, whatever other interests, maybe it's the case that you simply don't have time to even consider the Gospel because you're so busy with other things, even good things, like spending time with your family, and you're not seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Hobab needed to be challenged. Moses says, please do not leave. Here we find the God of reconciliation pleading through Moses. As Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5.20, that we have this ministry of reconciliation He says, God is, as it were, pleading with you. We plead with you on God's behalf, be reconciled to God. And here you have Moses pleading on God's behalf. Why will you die? Why will you turn back? Why will you prioritize meaningful and yet ultimately unsatisfying relationships in this life over God Himself? Will you come with us? Moses pleads with him. There's not enough pleading in evangelism because I don't think we really understand that we serve a God who pleads in evangelism. Throughout even the Old Testament, we find God saying things like, oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep all my commandments that it might be well with them and with their children forever. We have in in the Old Testament the Lord saying things like this. Oh, that they were wise. That they understood this. That they would consider their latter end. Do we understand that God pleads? That God even now is pleading with those here today who are outside of Christ. Be reconciled to me through Christ. God is pleading through His minister, through His ambassador. Pleading with you. Please don't leave. Please don't turn away. Be saved from this crooked and perverse generation. Come with us. And Moses emphasizes that in coming with us, you will be added to the body of God's people. You'll be our eyes. You'll you'll be servants and co-laborers with us in the kingdom of God. And then we're told, verse 33, so they departed. And it leaves us wondering what happened to Hobab. But if you look up in the book of Judges, I'm not going to read the verses, but Judges 1.16, Judges 4.11, Numbers 24, verse 21, repeatedly, God in His Word confirms that in fact, Hobab and his descendants did come. And they occupied the land. And we're told that uh, J.L., who famously pounded the tent peg into the temple of Sisera, the, the pagan king or the pagan commander who was attacking God's people. J.L., famous in that Bible story, hopefully among our children. It's always one of my favorite stories as a kid. But she's pounding the tent peg, 
you know, crushing the head of the serpent as it were. Her husband was a descendant of Hobab. So you have Hobab and his descendants living in the land of promise throughout the book of Judges and beyond. They left all and they followed Moses. And if Hobab and his descendants can leave all and follow Moses, what excuse do you have if you don't leave all and follow Christ? Let's pray. Oh Lord God, we bless Your name. We love You for You first loved us and have put us at enmity with the serpent, giving us a heart that abhors what is evil and clings to what is good. And what could be better? What could have superior goodness than the Lord Jesus Christ, our greater Moses, our liberator, our prophet, our priest, and our king, who commands us and invites us to come unto Him. O Lord, truly You have revealed Yourself through Your Son. And truly, it is the case that He is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to You. Indeed, no one comes to Your eternal heavenly kingdom, the Canaan above, except by Him. Lead us and guide us into His presence. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.